The interrelationship between music and health has been investigated by scholars and practitioners across a wide spectrum of fields, by medical physicians and cognitive scientists, psychologists and anthropologists, music therapists and musicologists. Ethnomusicological examination of musical participation and healing practices extends at least as far back as the 1920s with Francis Densmore's pioneering investigation of music in the treatment of sick among indigenous Americans. More recently, emerging study groups and subfields in ethnomusicology indicate a growing interest in research on music and health grounded in a socially informed, fieldwork-based study of local musical cultures. In the introduction to the Oxford Handbook in Medical Ethnomusicology, the editors propose that the study of music and medicine is a study of relationships, relationships among individuals and between disciplines. It is about a collaborative discourse. The importance of relationships and collaboration is also emphasized by public health experts who have increasingly turned to community-based participatory research in an effort to increase the efficacy of global health initiatives within local settings. For Bonnie McConnell, our guest in this episode, musical participation helps establish and strengthen relationships that bind musical practice and public health. You're listening to Ethnomusicology Today, a podcast produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology devoted to the exploration of contemporary issues in global music studies. I'm Trevor Harvey. In this episode, we talk with Bonnie McConnell about her article, Performing Participation, Conyoling Musicians and Global Health in the Gambia, which was published in the summer 2017 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. Informed by her fieldwork among Conyoling performers, Bonnie examines how community-oriented and participatory-based musical performances impact global health initiatives. By investigating the relationships between Kanyalang musicians, government officials, health workers, and local communities, Bonnie discusses the vital importance of musical performance and participation in local health education and effective global health strategies. Your research deals with the role of music in relation to global health issues in the Gambia. Just to start with, what what led you to this area of research? I first went to the Gambia as a a Peace Corps volunteer in 2005. At that time, I was working with an HIV AIDS support group, so working with people living with HIV. One of the projects that we worked on during the time that I was there was an album of songs about HIV, and it was performed by one of the members of the group. So that experience was really eye-opening for me in a lot of ways because I saw, first of all, some of the problems with international development programs and some of the, the narratives that I saw being used around HIV AIDS. But it also gave me a great appreciation for the, the role of musicians, particularly in drawing attention to sensitive topics relating to HIV uh, stigma, sensitive topics around sexual and reproductive health, and the way that music can also promote participation. So it kind of led me into what I eventually studied for my PhD. Your article in the Ethnomusicology Journal focuses on this role of female fertility society musicians known as Kanyaleng within public health education. Can you start with just a general explanation of Kanyaleng performers and the broader context of these fertility societies? The Kanyaleng groups are made up of women 
who have experienced infertility or child deaths. And this can be something that they're experiencing currently or something that happened to them in the past. So sometimes you, you actually have some kanyuling who go on to have many children, but they're still a part of the group. They engage in a variety of activities that are designed to promote fertility and to encourage their children to live into adulthood. And musical performance is a really important part of what they do. So they perform fertility rituals, including you know, initiation ceremonies, naming ceremonies for new babies. Uh, but they're also known more generally for their role as entertainers. So they're really appreciated also for for their skill as comedians. They perform at a variety of community celebrations like weddings, circumcision-related events. They kind of have many roles that they play. What was your experience, your first encounter or engagement with a Kanyulang group? It would have been around 2006, and I remember I went to a wedding celebration. Right? And everyone is kind of sitting in these plastic chairs, looking sort of uncomfortable. They have on these really fancy dresses. And then this group of women, they're not dressed up like everyone else. They kind of have ragged clothes on. Some of them have on men's clothing and they have uh, these beautiful beads around their necks and calabash hats on their heads. And they start uh, performing. They're singing the praises of the people who are there in a way that's similar to, to what griots do, but it's all a, a bit more casual. So everyone there starts to join in. They start to sing along. So it's call and response style. And then eventually they start to dance one by one, going into the circle and dancing energetically for about 20, 30 seconds and then exiting again. So I got really interested in, in kindling performances after this, and I started to go, in, go into more of their events. And I also uh, noticed how they would make fun of authority figures. So if you go to a kindling event, you, you'll see them. If there's police there, they'll march along behind the police, kind of mocking the way that they march. Uh, if people are praying, Kanyulang will even make fun of the people that are praying. So they're quite interesting in the ways that they can invert relations of power, sort of challenge authority. So in this article, you're talking specifically about polio vaccination and some of the challenges regarding large-scale or global health initiatives. In fact, you write that by looking at polio vaccination, you address the complex international power relations that characterize contemporary global health initiatives. Can you give us a broader historical context, understanding power relations and challenges regarding Western medical interventions in the Gambia? The contemporary uh, health outlook in the Gambia very much bears the imprints of the colonial period and the British colonial administration. In the Gambia, they had the colony, which was Bathurst, which is present-day Banjul, where they developed more services. The majority of the country of present-day Gambia was referred to as the protectorate, and services were very limited. So even today, you, have, you still have this uh, disparity with very uneven provision of health services throughout the country. In terms of contemporary global health initiatives, um, and this is not specific to the Gambia, the overwhelming majority of programs tend to be uh, short-term, disease-specific vertical programs. Uh, so funding comes in for a specific disease, a particular health priority, for example, HIV AIDS or Ebola. And uh, typically you'll set up a special program, special offices, special clinics for this program. These clinics will sit alongside hospitals, which are very underfunded. Right? So rather than investing in the long-term strengthening of the healthcare system, which is really what's needed in, in order to provide basic healthcare to the, 
to the majority of the population. Of course, it's not that HIV, AIDS, and Ebola aren't important, but we need to make sure that the you know the basic healthcare services are provided in a sustainable way. So I want to come back to the music and thinking about the role of of these cunning performers in dealing and approaching some of these challenges. And to ask maybe a, a very broad general question, the title of your article is Performing Participation. And you put the word participation within quotation marks. Why did you make that decision? What does that mean? Yeah, so I was interested in the different ways that the term participation is used in global health discourse and also in music scholarship. So the quotation marks there is sort of sing- signaling polyvalence, though the different ways that this term is used. It's very much a buzzword in global health and development, but the ways that it's used are quite different from how we use the term participation in ethnomusicology. So can you talk um, maybe more generally what participation means within Gambian society? There's not necessarily a direct uh, translation or equivalent in local languages of, of that term in the, way, in the ways that it's used in public health programs. What's quite interesting to me and one of the motivating or one of the reasons I, I wrote this article is participation is seen in the public health arena as being a really important thing, right? We don't want to have just these passive uh, target populations just receiving the information that we give to them. And yet it doesn't actually translate on the ground a lot of the time. So for example, you have musicians being engaged in these public health programs in the name of making them more participatory. But the reality is that a lot of the time the musicians are just seen as mouthpieces. So they're given a very specific message that they're told to to disseminate. So it doesn't actually play out in terms of promoting community engagement on a deeper level. So this is why I think, if I understand correctly, what kind of Lang groups kind of come in from in your research, that uh, there's a particular approach here to, to musical participation that opens up possibility for a, a greater sense of uh, local agency and empowerment. What's the participatory nature of Kanye Lang? Um, what does that look like? And in what ways does that make Kanye Lang performances particularly efficacious within the context of health education in the Gambia? Yeah, so taking the polio campaign launching as an example, the Kanyaling received training on this topic from the, the Ministry of Health, as they typically do. So they were given this information that they are supposed to disseminate, and they put that into a song. So then they go to the, the uh, polio campaign launching. And as is typical for these events, you have a, a lot of speeches, usually in English, um, and the majority of the people listening don't understand um, English. Um, and then they give a very short summary in the local languages of Ing- uh, Mandinka and Wolof. And then the Kanyaling performed. And they, they were singing in Mandinka. So they provided detailed information about the polio campaign, what was involved. But what was interesting about it is that the, you know, the health workers wanted them to disseminate this specific information. So in some ways, it was very much a top-down approach. In practice, they incorporated their own approach to musical performance, which requires participation from the audience, which requires active engagement. And you saw that playing out in, in that the people sitting there got up, uh, started to dance, started to laugh, started to sing along, started to clap their hands. And after the event, you could hear it in the, you know, in the ways that they were talking to the Kanyaling, oh, you made this event a success. This is the part of the event that really mattered. And it wasn't 
primarily about the information in the song, although that was important. It was also about the way that they promoted uh, participation. And as you explained, this is grounded in local understandings or local perspectives of, of music. What are these different perspectives of, of music and musical performance and, and how do they help us understand um, what's going on here within these colony performances? Yeah, so we have the English term music, right? but there's no, as is true for uh, in many places around the world, there's no local language equivalent. You do have the term musical, which is used often to describe recordings of popular music. But tulungo, which is the term that's used to describe kanyaling, it's considered to be a somewhat a different category of activity than musical, the recorded popular music, or uh, jalia, which is the practice of the griot, uh, which tends to be more uh, presentational because you have musical experts. It's more often music for listening, although these categories are not are entirely firm, and you have varying degrees of participation in a given performance. Uh, but nonetheless, it's useful to think about these different categories and how they, they signify different expectations about how people should participate and who should participate in a particular event. Where griots are professional musicians, kanyaling performers, are, they, are these non-professional performers? And does that shape the responses and the types of participation that audiences are, are engaging in for these performances? I think it does matter, although it's hard to make a firm distinction between your professional and non-professional because some kanyaling do make a lot of money from their performances and can even do it full-time. But in general, that is probably true. Griots are more uh, professional musicians. Kanyaling can be seen as more amateur and that anybody can, can do the kind of music that they do, with the exception of the kanyaling ritual performances, which are specific to their group. The other kinds of songs that they do are open to anybody. How does that then impact participation by audiences? The repertoire that Kanyaling sing tends to be familiar, and so it's easy for, for them to just jump in. For a Kanyaling performance, you don't have to be a good singer. People have said that to me. You can have a really bad voice, but you're just getting up there and singing and how you put the words together. Who actually brings these Kanyaling performers into the programming of health initiatives? Are they being hired by local government? Uh, are they emerging from a grassroots efforts and they're showing up to just be part of this? Or are they uh, tied into networks of NGOs? How, how does that work? It's a combination of all of those. There's a, a couple initiatives that were really important during the past several decades in bringing Kanyaling more into health and development communication programs. First was an organization called the Association for Promoting Girls and Women's Advancement in the Gambia. This was run by Bintajame Sidibe, the former director of the uh, executive director of the Women's Bureau. She collaborated with the Talindin Kanyalin group over many years. And they actually came to her and requested that she serve as their mother, their surrogate mother. And so this is common for groups in the Gambia. You select somebody to be your, the mother of your group. And that person will then look out for you, uh, advocate for you, invite you to things. So they did this with Vintage Ame Sidibe, and then she started to involve them more in development work, and it kind of took off from there. There was also a, a major project funded by the World Bank in the early 1990s, and this was called the Women in Development Project, a multi-sectoral project, involved the Ministry of Health and Social Welfare, the Ministry of Agriculture, numerous uh, non-governmental organizations. So the goal was to redress some of the gender disparities in participation in development programs. During this Women in Development project, relationships with Kanyaling groups throughout the country. Some of them were actually Kanyaling groups. Some of them were uh, women's groups of other kinds. And so they had this network 
established. That has continued to the present day. And the Ministry of Health continues to work with them, although they haven't had the kind of funding that they would have liked. And I also don't want to downplay the role of Kanyaling themselves in, in saying, hey, we have a role to play here, because that's certainly part of it. What have you observed in terms of the response of NGOs and non-local health workers to the participation of Kanyaling groups within these health initiatives? The Kanyaling groups are seen as just you know, something extra, something nice if you, if, if you can afford it. Uh, but if something needs to be cut, then they should probably be cut. A few years ago, I went to a rotavirus vaccine launching program. And this one, the Kanyaling had been invited and they had prepared songs on the topic. So rotavirus is a, a leading cause of childhood diarrhea in the Gambia. The Kanyaling were, were all set to go with their performance, but then the, the dignitaries, the special guests who'd been invited to the program were late arriving. So they didn't have as much time. And so, of course, the first thing they cut was the Kanyaling. You need to have all the speeches from the, the various representatives of you know, WHO, UNICEF, the ministry. So there's not necessarily the appreciation for the real contributions that Kanyaling make which in my view, go beyond just message dissemination. But it's part of this dominant paradigm in global health communication, which emphasizes individual behavior change and linear one directional communication, as opposed to this more dynamic empowerment model, which requires more multi-directional communication, requires active participation from the target population. is the positioning of the body? Going back to this idea of participation as well, you talked about the movement of the bodies, whether it's uh, participating, clapping, singing along, jumping in a circle and dancing. How does that position of the body lead to that greater sense of empowerment opposed to maybe this more Western biomedical perception of the body, right? This objective perception of the body rather than this active participatory one. Yeah, I think that's really important, uh, particularly in a context where the majority of people are not literate. The context of a, you know, speeches or, or pamphlet or even a, a training session where you sit quietly and listen to somebody, that can all feel a bit alienating, uh, particularly for women in the rural areas. These songs and dances that are familiar and that actively engage you, not only your mind, but your body, so challenging this um, dichotomy. People talk about how that helps them remember the information, and it also makes it less threatening. It's being incorporated into something that's familiar. It's being incorporated into the sounds and the body movement that they're familiar with on the one hand, and also have a particular way of interacting with others. And so it's, it's integrated in the social context rather than just being this oh, individual receiving facts. And this, I think... You suggest goes also beyond the individual body, too, in terms of a broader sense of, of community and sort of social interaction relationships. So what can we learn or understand from Cunningham Group's participation in terms of understanding community participation and its relational importance to health? In some ways, we can think of it going back to the way that Cunningham see health problems. So for Cunningham, in their fertility-related practices, they don't see fertility as being something necessarily that's located solely in the physical body of the individual. They see it as 
being rooted in social and spiritual issues. According to this approach, this understanding of health and illness, in order to address these problems, you really need to work to develop good relationships with others, both in in the physical world, and then that can also translate into a healthy spiritual life as well. This emphasis on creating positive relations with others in the performance space is actually something Kanyalin are quite articulate about. So they see themselves as being uh, mediators, as resolving conflicts. And this is something that has been more associated with griots. And they're different than griots in the ways that they make people laugh. So they try to break down barriers by, by making people laugh, bringing them together in a performance. But the power of this has been recognized not only by health and development organizations, but also in the political arena. So Kanyaling have been quite active in political campaigns since the early post-independence years. You know, the first post-independence president, Dauda Jawara, worked very closely with Kanyaling in the, the capital of Banjul because he knew that their, their ability to bring people together in the performance context enabled them to mobilize the community in a particular direction. Part of the success of these Kanye Lang groups is the familiarity of the of the songs and the musical material. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that repertoire? Where, where's the musical material come from, and and how is that music helping to you know beyond uh, communicating message? How is it co- helping to support these types of uh, social healing um, and holistic medical concepts that we were just talking about? How does it help, help to support those ideas? Yeah, so in, in Western Gambia, Kanyaling uh, typically perform with two mandinka rhythms, and that is the Lenjengo and Musuba. Lenjengo is, is the most popular rhythm and is performed in most programs in Western Gambia. Musuba literally means big woman, and that's, that rhythm is more associated with Kanyaling, although it's not specific to Kanyaling. So these are rhythms that have particular, a particular repertoire of songs associated with them. So in an event, you start with the song and then you move into the dance rhythm. Kanyaling, when they compose songs for health education programs, they draw on this existing repertoire of Lenjengo and Musaba songs. They adapt the words to address the particular health topic. And then they incorporate what they call the sataro section, the explanation section, in order to give more detailed information about the health topic. The songs that they use are typically are concerned with themes of love, kano, unity, kambengo, oneness, kilimbaya, and badia, which is probably the most popular theme. Badia literally means, it describes the relationship between children of the same mother in a polygamous context, but it's used more broadly to describe a very close relationship, a caring relationship. A positive relationship. So taking a song that has these particular associations with caring relationships, with these celebratory contexts of naming ceremonies and weddings, where the community comes together to support a particular family, by taking these songs, the Kanyaling also 
bring along with them particular associations because people are familiar with the repertoire. So they know, you know, when you hear a particular melody, it reminds you of the event where you where you heard it last week, right? Oh, I heard this at so-and-so's wedding. Oh yeah, and then it, it has that kind of positive association. One of the key aspects of Connie Lane groups is, as we discussed at the beginning, is these are based around female fertility societies. How do culturally informed concepts of gender affect the participation in and reception of these performances? Connie Lane performances are very much associated with women. They're gendered as a feminine activity, a female activity. And some men find cunnilingus threatening because they they challenge authority, they they cross dress, they don't you know sit quietly and listen to the the male authority figure. But at the same time, many men really appreciate cunnilingus. In some cases, because their mother was a cunnilingus, so they they actually believe that their existence is in the world is thanks to cunnilingus. In other cases, their wives or sisters are cunnilingus, and some men will even identify as cunnilingus themselves. Kanyling performances are very much gendered as a as a female space. So in some ways, that is a limitation in terms of reaching out to men, because in the Gambia, a lot of the time, health programs they tend to target women specifically, and women are often seen as responsible for issues of family health. So for health workers, involving Kanyling seems like a good way to target women who are the ones who are naturally. "Quote unquote," naturally in charge of the, these health issues, but in fact, there's concern among some health workers and among some women in the community as well that men don't see themselves as responsible, and they should. There's rec- recognition of this at the Ministry of Health level. They've changed the title of the of the clinics from maternal and child health to reproductive and child health to try to attract um, men to get involved as well. But there's there's a bit of an issue there. Some have suggested that radio programs or other kinds of performers may be more effective in targeting men. So some programs have used popular musicians or、uh, griot performers to target men specifically, whereas others say, "No, no, Kanyeling are, are really able to、uh, to appeal to everyone," which to some extent is true.、Um, so it it is a bit complicated. Are there men's groups? You know. Uh, similar to Kanyeling groups that are active in this sort of participatory and comical performance style. There are some、uh, men's groups, but not many. There are also some men who are part of Kanyeling groups that are mostly women, and some theater groups which do music, dance, and drama. But in general, these kinds of collective associations are more strongly associated with women, and it's something I've been been looking into, and I, I'm not. Entirely sure why this is the case, but、um, in speaking to Hasum Sise, who's a historian of women's history in the Gambia, he suggested that it may, in part, be attributed to the、um, some colonial era policies that really、um, cracked down on male associations. So they found groups of men were quite threatening, whereas the groups of women they they didn't have a problem with with these women's associations.
So given the complex web of relations between global health organizations and local musicians and communities, what challenges have you faced as an ethnographer in negotiating a culturally sensitive approach to working with Gambian women in the context of health? Yeah, it's been uh, complicated. I found, particularly when I meet people for the first time, um, they often assume that I'm a medical doctor or that I'm associated with a particular organization, that I have access to particular kinds of resources. And uh, that also shapes the kind of information they will share with me, or the kind of relationship that we have. But at the same time, I've been working in the Gambia for 12 years now. So I have relationships, friendships that have developed over that time and also changed over that time. If you were to talk to the members of the Talinding Kainulang, for example, they would have their own sort of narrative about me that they would tell you that, you know, I, that I am a Kainulang as well because I've been initiated into a group that we've danced and sung together over the years, that we've traveled together. They would tell you how I, I also had a baby after joining the Kainulang and he's a Kainulang child. For them, these different kinds of uh, responsibilities and, and expectations come out of the, our long-term collaboration. You're having a, a foreign woman join the Kanyulin group for them is a sort of a sign of the, the value of what they do and the legitimacy of their, their activities. Tell us about that process of being initiated and uh, participating as a, uh, a Western woman in, in a Kanyulin group. Yeah, so I initially joined, started performing with the group as wanting to learn from them, right? So taking lessons and just going to all their performances um, and participating with them. They're really not shy. So they'll be very blunt with you about what you should do and how you should behave. When I first started performing with the Talinding Kanyuling, I, I had a video camera, a camcorder, but I was, I was just getting to know them. So I'd always stand in the back. I didn't actually want to use it very much. But they said, no, 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 no. And they'd push me up to the front. Or if I was too shy, they'd just take it from me and walk right up to the front and start recording. Do you view your work in part as activist work? Yeah, in, in some ways, for sure. Uh, although a cautious activist as well, given my... So for me, the research and action have always been uh, intertwined. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm now working on a on a new project with Kanyaling. It's actually a partnership project with the Ministry of Health and Social Welfare and the National Center for Arts and Culture. So trying to look at the, the ways in which Kanyaling can support uh, mental health during and after pregnancy. But for this project, uh, I'm hopeful that it will perhaps change perceptions a little bit about the role of Kanyaling from being just message disseminators. I think it's important to also bring attention to the other kinds of, the other ways that they promote health through their performances. Bonnie McConnell is a lecturer in ethnomusicology at the Australian National University School of Music. Her research examines music in relation to issues of identity, social change, and well-being in West Africa and Australia. Her article, Performing Participation, Kanyalang Musicians, and Global Health in the Gambia, can be found in the summer 2017 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. Her forthcoming book, Music, Health, and Power, Singing the Unsayable in the Gambia, will be available from Routledge early next year. 
Ethnomusicology Today is produced with the help and support of many people. Special thanks to our student research and production assistants, Miranda Henry, Ross Clauser, and Todd Johnson, along with advisory board members, Harry Berger, Portia Maltby, Gay, Martin Stokes, David Kaminsky, and Leon Garcia Corona. Additional support and encouragement has been provided by SEM First Vice President, Judith Gray, and SEM Executive Director, Stephen Stempfley. Special thanks to the Kanyaling groups from Talending and Brikama for the musical examples in this podcast, and for the assistance of Bubadarbo from the Ministry of Health and Social Welfare in the Gambia. This podcast is produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology in collaboration with CARE-UI and with support from the University of Iowa College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Iowa Center for Research by Undergraduates.